Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Sia Furler is a survivor. Over the course of her life, she has experienced personal challenges that have led to addiction, anxiety, and as we found out in this conversation, subsequently PTSD. And she has continually channeled it through her music, her art, and in conversation to better understand herself, her experiences, and ultimately share those to help others. That requires a huge level of transparency, honesty, and a bravery in conversation that at times might make her, whoever's talking to her, and the people listening to her, uncomfortable, and that's okay. That lack of comfort can ultimately lead to a place of real pure honesty, and the learnings you get out of it, you share with others, and so you begin this timeline of growth. Sia Furler has grown before the eyes of her fans, and that's where we find Sia today in conversation right here on this, my pod space, a place where I can have these kind of conversations without worrying about how it taps into the music we want to play or the albums we want to promote or any of that stuff. This is a pure space for conversation, and this is a pure conversation. Really honest, really upfront, and everything I personally absolutely love about Sia and what makes her such an incredible artist. So I hope you enjoy this. This conversation I had very, very recently, days ago, right here with Sia. We just talk about it. I've waited to see you for a very long time. When I came to Los Angeles, a little known fact, I'm going to put our personal lives on blast for a second, but for good measure. Yeah. When I first came to Los yeah. Angeles, I didn't know anybody. And Sia was kind enough to reach out to me and uh, and my wife and I, we have two boys and and she was away. And so she said, well, look, you, you're being a lonely dad. Why don't you come around with the boys? And we came around with the boys and we had an amazing day at the pool and we got to hang and yeah. you, made, you made Los Angeles feel like a family place. And I've been forever grateful for that. And I've never seen you since. So clearly we made a terrible impression on you clearly i know I, I was gonna say what my thoughts were about it because i figured we'd talk about it i would say we got lazy or we got busy or something we because where we like each other it's very clear yeah there we have an affinity for one another and how resilient we are and yep. whatever you're a real one you're a real honest very good-hearted, hard-working, stubborn, compa- all the qualities I love about people, compassionate, empathetic <laughs> human being. And I'm so Thank glad you. to see you. And I'm so happy we're going to get too. to spend an hour together today kicking it, playing music, and talking about life, man, because I love you to death. You're the best. You really are. Yeah, me too. I'm really happy we're together again. Right. Whoa, that yeah. was like a thunder. I'm going to sit back and relax. Please. Where are you right now? Are you in America, Australia? Where, which part of the world I'm are you in? I'm in America, in a secret part of America. <laughs> which means it's in the middle of nowhere, but that's fine because everywhere in America is in the middle of nowhere still has internet. <laughs> yeah, we call it butt in Australia. I'm exactly. in the middle of butt. You didn't think about sort of jumping on a jet just before it got hectic and getting back to Australia and just, I don't know, because a lot of people did. A lot of people kind of decided to quarantine somewhere different. Australia is no longer my home. Yeah. 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 When, when did you realize that? Los Angeles that? is my home. When did it, when did that dawn on you? Probably ten years ago, maybe. That's relatively recently, in a weird way, because I mean, I think normally that's the kind of thing people come to that conclusion after decades of graft and and laying down roots. That feels like something maybe clicked or happened. Was it was it a positive change? It was the sobriety. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was the sobriety, and it was the the meetings were good there in LA, and I felt like I had a good, strong, supportive like network of people. And I also felt like I was living in beautiful nature, and yet I was five minutes from my industry. Yeah. And so I didn't have to fly 
moved from London or Australia or... They don't really understand when you come from Australia and New Zealand and you relocate. And I'm sure you've had this before. I mean, the most common question I get is, why did you leave? Why did you leave? Why did you leave? And it's like, yeah, yeah I so get beautiful. it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's isolated. It's all the things you aspire to get away from when you grow up in a metropolitan environment. But if you have any ambition until the internet and still to be fair, mm-hmm. it's challenging yeah. to want to, to want to achieve those things. And so you got to decide, yeah, is, is it nature? It's a small market. Yeah, it's a small market, right? But here we are. We have music to play and we're going to talk about the things that you have coming up because you're a you're a movie maker now. You're a filmmaker. Filmmaker. I know. Well, I was like deliberating. Do I come and see the pop star or do I come and see the director? Which feels wanky just to say in the third person no. anyway. Well, this but a- like this- I still want to be kind of unfamous. And because we were playing music, I thought I'll come and see the pop star. I'm glad you did because I know what Sia the Human looks like so I don't feel shortchanged. <laughs> but just as a, as a, as a quick <laughs> FYI for people, um, I just saw Sia, the filmmaker on GMA, and now she's the pop star on Apple <laughs> Music. So you got your priorities. Bang in order, Sia. Bang in order. <laughs> I want to talk about this song together because it's one thing to, to write and direct a film. That's a lot. The obvious thing I think for people would be you're going to provide the music as well. But it's not actually uh-huh. that obvious a decision because, you know, you've got your hands full doing these other things. And also sometimes yeah. it's nice to be able to let other people interpret your art. Like you let video directors oh, do videos for, sure. for your music. Why wouldn't you let musicians do music for yeah. your videos or, or, or movies? But you yeah. decided Until to do the song. Chandelier. <laughs> Until Chandelier, exactly. Until Chandelier, and then I started directing those too. And that's true, that's true. That's true, and you're a great director, which is why you're making a, a film. Well, thanks. That I was, you know, I was pretty, uh, I was scared. I was reticent to, I thought it was Daniel Askill's skills and that I just had some good ideas and I didn't know that being a director, that that was all you really needed was some good ideas and yeah. that with the right crew, you can explain what you want. You can show them pictures of what you want it to look like. You can, you know, it's. Uh, I guess I'm an old school auteur. That would be what people have. And then, and then directing actors. I'm good at that because I'm just good with people from having to suck like pop stars. And- <laughs> to, to get them to do one fucking worthwhile take. <laughs> Just to sing the song as I fucking wrote it, please. Just sing it as I fucking wrote it. I know you can't hit the notes because I'm way too good for you, but just try. Just try. I love them trying to sing it their own way. That's not it. It's just trying not to get them to write a shit lyric. It was just that it's just when there's a shit lyric coming and you know it's shit and then your name's going to be next to it and then there's still a slight amount of pride. Yeah. And so... You, so you have to learn how to create, you know, manage egos and create sandwiches and shit like that. And so that was perfect for directing. Yeah. I mean, although Maddie is, you know, been with me since she was 11, she's the most professional actress I've ever worked with. And you have a secondhand language, right? You have the ability through your friendship and the fact that you've been through so much together professionally and personally, and you've watched her grow up as a, as a, as a young person to becoming a young adult that you just understand each other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I'm and I'm protective. I'm super protective of her, so I'm never going to put in her her in a situation that I think is dangerous or overworked or um, that's part you know, of the gig. Like, that's part of the gig. Sometimes and I'm not saying that that is justifiable, but emotional danger, no. risk taking is part of being an, uh, you know an actor or musician or an artist. And so, is it tough mm-hmm. sometimes walking the line when when you need someone like Maddie who personally you want to protect, but performance wise you need to push into a space where they're going to give you that little bit extra? Yeah. 
Well, I never have had to push her, never once. But yes, I agree with you that, you know, I, I had a real come to Jesus like shortly after Chandelier and I was like, oh, my God, I've just exploited this child because I didn't want to be famous. I put her in the role as avatar or muse and now I've given her exactly what I was trying to avoid, how now I owe her big time and so that's why i've dedicated yeah i mean so that's why i've kind of dedicated my life to you know i i i have her i've covered her her protection and i i mean i talked to her as much as i can i talked to her and i I made sure she never got on a jet to see harvey weinstein i'm you know i've just like anytime there's been anything questionable i've been like don't do it to her her um parents so just anything i have any insight into i've just been trying to protect her and 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 protect her psychologically from you know the stress of being a public figure often we try to as you said protect ourselves and in doing so we offload that fear onto others totally i mean once i realized it i felt so bad but then she said to me, no, I wanted it and I was already famous. And, How does she you know? know? She and was I'm 11, like, 12. I mean, she can say that. But yeah, that's... yeah, exactly. She's a child. She has no idea. and She won't until probably this year, next year, next year after. Yeah. Will she know whether she really, really was prepared for fame? I know some people are more prepared for fame than I was. You know, Kim Kardashian is like, I was, I love it. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. and she says so she's born for it. You know, Kylie Jenner, not so much, you know. So you've got your, you know, in every family, there's a different breed. Maddie deals with it in a really phenomenal way. But I've, I've inserted security and all sorts of shit in, in the way now because she was starting to feel like a zoo animal and she became dissociative and that worried me a great deal. You know, I just adopted two boys. I know. Congratulations. Last year. That's fantastic. Thank you. And, and, you know. Yeah, they are fantastic. Yeah. And, and the fact that you did it as they were, as they were sort of, as they were, they were starting to foster out of the system was, I thought was a yeah, really. Yeah, they were aging out of the care system. Yeah. They haven't until they're 21, but they were both 18 when I adopted them. What's really admirable and amazing about that is that a lot of times when people are looking to adopt, they want the, they, they want to come in as, as close to ground level as possible because obviously. They, of course, because it's about their ego and, and they also, want to make a little version of themselves. And also to be fair, you know, the biological challenge prevents people from having as much time as they possibly can. So they want to maximize the amount of time. So it's a bit of both. I agree. That's possible. You know, but, uh, but in this I'm going to go more for the, the ego. The prima. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just that, you know, you want to see what kind of recipe you can make or you you want to have the most influence on their outcome. You want to make a little version of you or, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that drives a lot of people, but you know, I, I'm a little bit jaded now after investigating the foster system as much as I have done in the last year. Why? Oh, because it's completely uh, corrupt and it's, it's failing us. It's a, fa- it's a failing institution it's in your experience? Not in my experience, in my son's experience. Yeah. Yeah. They've been, you know, to, they've been in 18 different locations in their 18 years. That's a that's very hard to even consider as a parent and as a child who is lucky enough to have a secure upbringing, right? I'm one yeah. of the most privileged human beings on the planet for those two reasons alone. Yeah. Your experience now adopting two young men. Two young men at a point where started out as a pretty massive roller coaster, like it was a big like, you know, they told me one thing I discovered another but I just stayed 
really uh, like a kind of Al-Anon ninja. Like I just kept really strong boundaries and, you know, I would say you could do this or you could go back to where you came from, which is what, you know, is not is not a nice life. It's not a good life. And I'd say, I'm doing this because I'm your mother. I love you. I have no other agenda than, I, than the fact that I love you. I don't want to see you in prison. I don't want to see you as that 5% that's in prison um, with your history and with your, you know, and the color of your skin. I don't want to see you as that 5% that ends up in prison for life. I don't want, like, I don't want that for you. I want, I want something different and I, there is something different for you if you just trust me that I, in this one case, I know better. That is a long road because you're untangling a huge amount of learned behavior and, trauma. and, and yeah, repetitive trauma. Conditioning and complex trauma. Yeah. But yeah, both of them have been through trauma programs since I adopted them. And I um, mean, one recently came out and he's just blossoming and it's the light of my life. <laughs> I love him so much. And the, and the youngest is right now in trauma process, processing right now. And I really pray that he can uh, manage because I, it took me until I was, you know, 41, I think, to deal with my uh, early developmental trauma. And I don't want that for them. But you can't force anyone. Trauma has to come out when it, you're in a safe environment, when you're ready, psychologically ready. So yeah. I'm just trying to do my best for them. You know, it feels to me like you'd worked out a while ago, even as a human being, as an individual on this planet, that there was more to life than the narcissistic ambition of success, right? I first I was into that. First oh, I yeah. thought, oh, my parents no. will love me. If I become famous, my parents will love me. Then and everyone will love me. You gotta dive in deep. I'll be cool. It'll fix me. Yep. All of that. It'll be the just the says gets the cure. That distraction. That distraction. That distraction. That distraction. I just thought being loved by strangers was the cure. And of course, when I even got to a level of even average fame, I realized that that was not the case. And it was so incredibly disappointing. And then as I got progressively slightly more famous, I realized it wasn't for me at all and that I had made a huge mistake. Yeah. And yeah, and then I went into wig mode and behind the scenes stuff. The behind the scenes stuff is the stuff that really interests me. That work you have to do. Because what we see is the is the is you bringing yourself into a controlled environment and saying you yeah. don't get this anymore. Yeah. But behind the scenes, you st- that doesn't fix anything either. That's still just another distraction. Yeah, it's true, and I don't need distraction anymore. Because mm. um, you've done the I work, think right? I sent a cl- yeah. Well, um, yes, and also because in the beginning I sent a pretty clear message: Can you just leave me alone for a little while? Because I'm having a you know kind of a nervous breakdown. I put a wig on so that you know I don't want to be famous and I, I sent a clear message and people have been extremely respectful of that message. Then I, you know, got married, got a divorce almost as quickly. Um, that was super devastating. It brought up a lot of developmental trauma and I was in bed for three and a half years. You know, I made the movie and then I got into bed for three years and I edited the movie during that three years, but it was the hardest thing Editing is the hardest thing ever. I just, it's not for me. It really put me to bed. I had to, uh, I was had a lot of suicidal ideation over the last three or three and a half years. I couldn't get out of bed. I um, 
I was finally diagnosed with complex PTSD and not uh, bipolar 2. So I thought I'd been living with bipolar 2 and then I was actually correctly diagnosed as having complex PTSD from a number of childhood and developmental things and then a bunch of adult trauma as well. And then I also think that getting famous should fall under a traumatic category and I think that's why a lot of, you know, our celebrities are in rehab and killing themselves. I'm seeing this a lot. uh, It's the greatest disappointment. It's been, um, for me at this point in my life, being 46 and having talked to musicians about almost every aspect of music that I could talk about, right? And I mean, like, short of actually just being a full-time music producer or collaborator or writer or just committing myself to that, which is probably what I should have done. um, I've just... (laughs) I've just pulled it apart in every way I can and continue to do so. But what's been really interesting in the last few years is watching this whole carefully constructed veneer of fame and success, which really went, got in, like, it hit steroids in the late 80s throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. Those 25 years yeah. is where fame had a great run. Yeah, and then it got toxic. And then, and then something happened. There was a twist in the tail, and it's like, wait a minute, this is this is. And once a few people start to yeah. say, this is shit, you were very vocal about that. A yeah. lot of people start to say, this is really shit. And not this is like, I'm yeah. miserable for being successful and having a nice house. No, oh, that's that people me, dump on me. you. It's because it's not fixing what's ultimately fractured and put me on this path in the first place. Yeah. What happened is I have an attachment injury. I had or I had an attachment injury. And what I needed to do was three years of extreme attachment repair work, which is the newest kind of psychology. I haven't heard about that. What is that? This science. This is based on science. Attachment theory is based on science. Attachment theory is actually the cause of all addiction. Mm. Um, uh, is that you on loud or me? Because yeah, I can Sorry. have my phone turned on. Music, no, it's all right. Go on, carry on. Oh, no worries. Sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, <laughs> it's the old PTSD. Because when I was a workaholic, that noise was like, that noise was all I heard. So it's like about ten, eight years ago, I became a workaholic right after I got sober. Yeah. And then all I heard was that, that noise, noise for like three years while I was doing riding titanium and flow I, rider and I, listen, whatever, you know, I everything get it. I could Right, world's biggest drake fan over here who decided to make drake his ringtone for anything work related and now as soon as i heard i ain't felt the pressure in a little while it's gonna take some getting used to what you say i just want to literally throw my phone at the wall and drake is kind of busted for me a little bit right now that's why i never like you know i asked nigel godrich to produce one of my albums once and he said I don't want to. He he produces all the Radiohead yeah, yeah. albums, and he said oh, he was like, "I love you, Sienna. I, I want to keep enjoying your music." Wow. <laughs> so his thing was like, "I don't want to get inside your process in case it turns me off." So now we know that Tom York and Nigel Godrich are not really friends. <laughs> No, they're really good friends. I, I think they're really good friends. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But just if you know, it's hard when you hear a song a thousand billion trillion times, it's hard to want to put it on for your relaxation. Do you listen to your own music? No, hardly ever. I mean, I won't say no, no, in, no definitively, yeah. but hardly ever. I don't listen to any other music either. So, but I, so I'll listen to, say, Okay, so together I listened to probably 20 times because I thought it was good. Yep. Cheap Thrills I probably listened to 20 times after I recorded it because I thought it was good. Saved my life. Um, Chandelier. 
uh, saved my life. I, I listened to it at least 15 times because it was for my best friend, Dallas, as well. That's cool. And it, so it had a real emotional connection with me. Yeah. And so, and I was like, ah, oh, this just felt really, it felt good. Yeah. But I don't listen to my album tracks. Um, if I come on the radio, I like, I made a deal with myself that I'll pull over and get out of my car and like dance around and be grateful. Has anyone um, ever busted you? Has anyone ever filmed you or seen never, you or recognized you? Amazing. Never, never. What's the strangest and, uh, place you've pulled over and had a boogie to your own music? Uh, the 101 freeway. <laughs> it was titanium. <laughs> While cars are blasting past you on the 101. Heading north. Yeah, but I was in that. I was in a special lane where you're not going to get, you know, but I was breaking down. You're breaking down listening to your own music. Oh, that is an existential crisis I wish we had on video. I really do. Watching you dance on the 101 crying openly to Chandelier or whatever, that, that sounds fucking amazing. That's some shit I really want to see. You do get filmed, though. By the way, I don't know if you've ever confirmed this, but that supermarket video was fucking amazing. Did you know you were being filmed that oh, day? That was real. I did not. I, and I was telling everybody that I was CC and that I won the lottery. So um, and then this one one girl uh, at first came up to me and said, "I know who you are. You sh- like you you should be like you should be acknowledged for this." And I was like, "Please don't." Yeah. I said, "This is not what I like. That's not why I'm doing this." I said, "Please, please don't blow my cover." Yeah, it would have spoiled the whole moment. Would have spoiled it. When did you decide to do it, and why did you decide to do it? Why? When? Oh, well, we were. I was at Petco, and there was just a couple of people behind me, and I just felt like it. So I said, "Here, let me get those for you." And they were like, "No, no, what are you talking about?" And I was like, oh, "Just let me do it. Please let me do it." And they and they let me do it, and that was that. And then I I got a high off of it. So then I went to TJ Maxx. <laughs> And I did it there for about two, three hours. And then someone there, a woman there, brilliant woman, obviously, said to me, you shouldn't be here. You should be at Walmart where they really need your help. And I was like, she's right. So me and Selvin got in the car and we drove to Walmart. And we did that for about four hours until <laughs> until my credit cards got stopped. My credit cards got stopped four times. So we had to call and get them reinstated four times, both credit oh, wow. cards. So eight times in total. But it was because I was letting people buy televisions and telephones and stuff. Oh, <laughs> Originally, I was just planning to do groceries, but then amazing. I was like, sure. And then they were getting gift cards and stuff. And, and um, this, yeah, is a, so, this is a lost I, scene in a Tom Hanks movie. You do know that, right? This is the kind of thing Tom Hanks, <laughs> the character, does in some kind of movie. <laughs> it's true. He always casts himself in the best roles. Best roles. Now, if you don't mind me asking, that's where I want to stop. Because when you said I got a high... I immediately was like, all right, if you're a recovering addict, no matter what it is, you can't cure yeah. the desire for adrenaline, for the high, for the feeling. All you can do is try to stop or the impulse of destroying yeah, the dopamine. All you can do is yeah, try to stop yeah. the impulse of getting it in a destru- self-destructive or destructive way to others, right? So you got yes. that same sense of, of dopamine, that same high. Did it at any point, despite the fact that you were doing good, did it scare you, that feeling that you got? No. And the reason is, is because drug use addiction is called autoregulation. It's when we're, we're born with an attachment injury. It usually happens in the first 10 months of our lives. Anything can happen. The family dog may die and the mother baby crying whilst holding the baby and looking into its eyes. It's, uh, it's just, it can be as simple as that, but it's an attachment injury that happens in the first 10 months of our lives. What happens then is that we grow up with a vision of ourselves and how to relate to others in the world. 
They're called attachment strategies based solely on our primary caregiver in those first 10 months. So the thing is, is, well, you know, when I twirl my hair or I bite my nails or, uh, or I watch television, that's all auto-regulation, as is using drugs. It's a way to survive when you, your brain didn't get what it needed as a baby and it doesn't work properly. So you have to auto-regulate in order to survive. When you get sober, you auto-regulate using television, but better is co-regulation and that's using another human being. Those 20 minutes of eye contact or talking on the telephone, same right now within this pandemic, it's so important. It's science. It's proven science that isolation is bad for the brain. It causes suicidal ideation and that what's most important for us is to be in meaningful relationships, healthy, meaningful relationships with people who give us exactly as much as we give them or if they're giving us a deficit, we know that when we need to take more from them, they're going to take a deficit. The brain, there's this theory called the Dunbar numbers and the brain, and, and it basically, you know, they are that we need 1A relationship. Usually that's your best friend or your partner. And you need three to five B relationships. And your A relationship you see every day, you talk to every day. Your B relationships, you talk to at least once a week in person or on FaceTime during pandemic times. And it's the only way to keep the brain healthy. And it's the only way to keep the brain from acting out in its negative functions. For It's unskillful. We, we call it unskillful mm. auto-regulation tools. So unskillful ways to auto-regulate are drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, masturbation, gambling, shopping, you know, the things that are destructive to ourselves and our families and our loved ones. Constructive auto-regulation, exercise. It's not the greatest, but workaholism to a degree. Mm is you know better than the others for me it's tele it's always been dogs and television and friendships so you know i'm lucky because i ended up quarantining with most of my curated family and we've been able to be together during this period but i even in the last two years since i hired security i only just hired security even in a just just this last two years i've realized that having someone with me at all times has completely changed the way that my brain works because I love them. They're my security guards. I love them and I'm able to co-regulate with them. And that, therefore, if I'm having a funny or uncomfortable or feel experiencing any discomfort, yeah. I'm able to just be honest with them and they'll come and sit and hold my hand if I need to have a cry, you know, or... You know, like uh, I'm blessed. Now I have the resources for this, but most people don't. Yeah. So most people have to really take it upon themselves to pick up the phone and call and to know they're not a burden and to know that every time they pick up the phone and call someone else, they're doing them a favor. It's 50-50. Because yeah. that when they pick up the phone and they take that call, that they're getting out of their own head and they're getting to listen to your story and that you are equally co-regulating one another, keeping each other within a window of tolerance. What we're all listening to right now is, is somebody who's done the work. You did the work. You had to get to that place to understand why you were having these impulses and what losing your A relationship, your A connection at that mo crucial moment, mm -hmm. why you ended up going mm -hmm. back to bed and it affected you the way that it did. And mm -hmm. not everyone has the the strength to be able to do that work that you've done and be able to share it with everybody else not right strength. now. Not strength. 
resources, but it's not about strength, babes. So what is it that gets you hit off the pillow and gets you studying to, to, to start to charter a path through this? You want to die or you want to live? So it's, the, it's that. Mm. God, it just does come down to that, doesn't it? It just, it just when you're yeah. in that state, it comes you down to, to that. You have to have community. You have to have a community. And there's 12-step meetings for everything. There's 12-step meetings for being sad, 12-step meetings for having a mean mom, 12-step meetings for having a drunk mom, 12-step mm. meetings for, you know, there's, they're for everybody. It, I mean, it, that's an important first step. And then once you've got sort of some basis or indoctrination in those sorts of things of being part mm. of a community and keeping up your fellowshipping and blah, 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 then you can go deeper into trauma work because the 12 steps is from the 50s and they're wanting very desperately for some of the newer science in trauma recovery. On first impression, it's like, here comes Sia, the Charismatron, one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. But equally, you're a no-bullshit human being. And there is an edge to you which, which sets you apart. I wonder, on the harder side of things, on the tougher side of things, I wonder where forgiveness fits into that. Because to go through the work you've got to go through, I just wonder what the term mm-hmm. forgiveness means when you realize that you're dealing with, with this trauma. Because it comes from somewhere. I can tell you my experience. I mean, my experience was I thought I had forgiven those who, you know, had harmed me. And I thought that it was fully processed. And then I did a much, much deeper retreat on forgiveness, you know, and they had some very unique techniques to get you back, you know, into looking, looking at your parent as a 12-year-old or your uh, abuser as a child and using the imagination to uh, kind of fill in the blanks. And the thing is, is the interesting thing is, is that Harvard has discovered that the brain can't really tell the difference if you, whether you imagine it or whether you now as an adult, if you can imagine that they were suffering and they were suffering and they were suffering and that's why they caused this harm to you, that forgiveness becomes so much easier. And, you know, there's a new treatment called Idealized Parent Figure Protocol, which is the latest treatment from Dan Brown at Harvard in, um, PTSD and complex PTSD and early developmental trauma. And and in that treatment, you design the perfect parents and you go back to every traumatic experience you've ever had and they arrive and they give you the care that you needed at the time. And then you get to go back and they get to intercept before the traumatic event ever occurred. And the brain can't tell the difference. That's interesting because what it is is what it's saying is we we just got to get you into a place where the rest of your life is going to be better. Yeah, but, and so from and I did experience a much more profound forgiveness for those who harmed me during mm. this retreat. Mm. I really did. I really, really, really saw that they were just ill-equipped. We are entering into an unprecedented time right now in terms of the way that that human beings whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the... Police brutality. Yeah, man. We can say it. Yeah. At a time when it's right in front of you and it's Mm -hmm. on your phone. And you can't look away because, by the way, we've all been trained now to look at everything because it's all just fucking disaster Mm -hmm. porn. Here's here's the truth right in front of you. You can't look away, even if you wanted to and you shouldn't. There's so many complex layers of how we're all going to interconnect in a new way. And as somebody who has done a lot of work in terms of working out how you can interconnect and continuing to do that work 
and a building. So I look at things like a micro and a macro, right? And your macro, you've been working yeah, yeah. on your on your micro now for a long time, trying to get yourself right, yeah. working out how you're going to extend into into a sharing environment as as a, as a mother, how you want to show mm-hmm. up like that. The macro yeah. needs our attention too, all of us. And and I just I just wonder from your perspective how you feel about things right now. I mean, I'm going to cry. <laughs> That's what's going to happen now, right now. I'm going to cry. I'm like, oh, so it's so sweet. They just put a box of tissues in front of me. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that it took me to adopt two black sons to really understand what they go through on a daily basis. I'm embarrassed that there are bikini pictures up on the Daily Mail. Like when this reality is happening and it's what we should be addressing more than anything else, more than any dumb movie I'm putting out or any song I'm putting out or any music I ever loved. <laughs> um, but that, that there are things we can do. Like we can actually act and we can actually try and get justice for Breonna Taylor and yeah. Elijah McLean. Like, you know, just like that there's actually – we can have an effect. We don't have to just feel sad and guilted. Yeah, or scared. Yes, very scared. Very scared for my children. I love them so much, you mm, know. Mm. Dave Chappelle is my friend, but you know, when he said shut up, white women white women are I was like, I can't. I'm sorry. I know I've never experienced, I've only ever experienced white privilege and I know that now and I am fully aware of how much I've experienced white privilege. Yeah. And now I have these two black sons who tell me how it really is, you know? Yeah. So. And also I firmly believe what some people have said to me and, and to others and have been said in the, you know, loudly lately that, that this is a time to get a bit messy and to get it wrong to get uncomfortable, but at least to try yeah, sure. because otherwise we just try yeah. to, we just try to, we, you know, we, we ultimately tuck ourselves away and do what we think is, is manageable within our micro, right? It's manageable for me to do this, this, yeah, and, and this. Yeah, and also people care so much about like, uh, you know, oh, if I say this will my movie flop, yeah, if or I will say I just, this will yeah. my album flop, like I don't give a fuck about that right now, you know, like I've got these two children who could be shot and killed tomorrow just for being black Mm. Mm. so i like so if you'll excuse me i'll I'll do i would like to just read these things if you care about brianna taylor and her murder you can email the attorney general daniel j cameron at attorney.general at ag.ky.gov and you can demand that he arrest those officers. If you care about Elijah McClain, you can email Governor Polis at governorpolis at state.co.us if you care. But we need to police the police force as we police the civilians. And until that happens, it's a broken system. Every horrific human example of this failed institution hundreds of years of just failing after failure after failure. Yeah. One of the things we've been talking about is the impact of, of, of mental health awareness. And, you know, in an example like Elijah McLean, where it was clear that this was, 
that this was somebody who needed a different, who needed to be treated in a way Level that was of care. compassionate, yeah, you know, understood. It's complicated. Human beings are complex. We're complicated people. We're complicated things. I want to tell you about this documentary that was based. It's basically the San Antonio Police Department who, mm. as far as I'm concerned, are doing the best job. They've allocated funds for a mental, a mental health unit. And most people, when they call the cops, aren't there to say, you know, the sun is out. My kids are smiling. Yeah. Every, I just made a hundred thousand bucks on the stock market, you know, and that they're in and they're having an emotional disturbance yeah. of some sort or another. I mean, and this whole random pulling over of people for no reason has got to stop. But in, in these other, you know, the the boy with the drill, the boy with the screwdriver. I mean, he he was not a danger. No. He was nowhere near a danger. He wasn't coming towards them with any force. No, like it's just wrong. Yeah, the appropriate. There's no. There's no appropriate response. Like that. That's that, you know, ability to create an appropriate response, and and that is where it is so fundamentally broken. And add to the fact that I think that there is a willingness, an actual willingness to cause harm. Sometimes, not every time, yeah, but sometimes. I agree. I just think it's like an act tough bravado and don't look, you know, weak in front of your teammates. It's called Ernie and Joe mm-hmm. Cop Crisis. It's on HBO documentaries. Okay. But you can find it. I'm sure you can find it anywhere, but it's Ernie and Joe Cop Crisis. Now, if these people were running our system, things would be so different. And, you know, because I'm not a, I'm not a, cop hater i'm against brutal force unlawful force unlawful arrests Mm. unlawful pulling overs unlawful everything to do with race but i'm not against like the people who started out trying to be cops to try and be better people Mm. we need empathy across the board i mean we need to completely redefine the system of how we are training the people who want to protect and serve. Because PTSD doesn't just exist in one type of individual. It can come in any type of individual in any type of occupation, including the police force, including the authorities. Imagine if you woke up every day and, and had to go and face the things that had most upset you every day for your occupation. It, it, would, mm-hmm. it would trigger unless you, unless you had done the work and found a way to come through in, in terms of, and, and were able to process it and had been trained properly to process it, it would trigger you and you would get that same feeling of anxiety, that fight or flight. In fact, if you are securely attached, you would bounce back. But less than 50% of us are securely attached in the attachment theory ideology. And therefore, at least 50% of the police force are not going to be able to handle the amount of trauma that they deal with without proper care. This is the world that we're trying to uh, trying to fix. So we have to stay focused on. I appreciate you, you know, raising awareness and continuing to do that. And I love that that you're willing to, you. to to be honest and open and get messy and just this is how, this is who you are. So I just, I'm just think like oh, you're just an honest I mean, human. Yeah, I, I put my heart and soul into a movie, but it doesn't matter right now. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't matter. It's not important 
in I see the importance of entertainment and that you have to take a break every now and again from watching the worst video you've ever seen. To that's the worst not why it matters, though. That's not there. that's not why it matters, though. It matters because it's an honest expression and that's an inspiring situation. And we can't lose sight of what inspires people. The work must continue. We have to do our work. We all have to work as hard as we possibly can at any given moment to make the world a better place. But we can't forget the importance of simply inspiring one another, of creating something that inspires somebody else to make something to do something that is the chain that cannot be broken and that's why i was so grateful i don't even know if i agree with that i love you for thinking that but i just don't even know if i agree with that but what happens if you take it away i mean what 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 what, i mean otherwise what music would someone else will do it Okay, I get that, and I get that theory. If you feel no, I get that. You're right. You're right. We have to be. We have to be more self-aware, and we have to create more space for everybody. If this is your point, for everybody to be able to have an experience and to share the resource, limited resources on this planet, limited attention, limited resources, limited opportunity. It's just limited, and I agree with that. And that's something. That's right. And I don't want to use my limited resources to talk about a movie or music when I can talk about police brutality. Yeah. Now. Other people, that that's fine. That's not, they aren't so, they haven't spent this long in the industry and they don't feel confident enough in their work to know that if it's good, it'll go well. And if it's bad, it'll just disappear and nobody will give a You've been to those places where nobody gives a f- uh-huh. to know that there's another yep. part to your story. And yeah. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. That is, you know, that is scary. That first taste of failure when you've seen what's possible. And you don't have the self-awareness to be able to acknowledge that it's all part of the journey. That is scary. That is a scary day. I mean, we're all going to be irrelevant, completely irrelevant. Every single one of us entertainers, entertainers, we're all going to be irrelevant. Some of us will be shares. Some of us will be Frank Sinatra's, who I continuously keep calling Tony Sinatra over the last three weeks. Who's Tony? Makes my friends friends just fucking crack. Who's Tony Sinatra? I'm, I'm like a grandma. I'm a grandma. I just completely miss people's names. I mess people up. I oh mess my god! Names you instantly right. in adopting at a certain point, you instantly aged yourself into grandma status. Instantly. Um, dude, my my uh, my youngest son just had two babies. Oh my god, that's amazing! Grandma, you're actually a grandma. <laughs> that's incredible. I'm a grandma. I know, right? To try to bring Drake back into a place where he's not waking me up or telling me I have to work to do, you went from zero to a hundred real fucking quick. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I was immediately horrified. Wow. You see, there's still a little bit of ego there at play. I love it. You're like, oh my god, I didn't mean to make myself a grandma so quickly. No, no, I'm cool. They call me Nana. Wow. Anyone who I'm knows you's been calling call me Lovey, like. Like Chris Kardashian, I'm like, call me lovey. Everyone, everyone, <laughs> anyone who knows you knows that you've been a nana. You're, you've always been a nana. That's your energy nana, is to, yeah, your energy true. is to protect oh and God, nurture. I'm such a nana, and you're fiercely loyal. You're right. You're fiercely loyal yeah. to the people that you love. With fierce loyalty, also comes you know a fierce protect a protection mechanism that can make you feisty yeah. against those that are that are attacking those that you love. Only since I became friends with Maddie and became like this, felt this feeling of protector come up, I realized that I literally, I could never see myself being violent, but I could see myself, you know, I had a bodyguard tell me, if you ever quit your day job, you should do this because I was constantly guarding Maddie, even though he was guarding me. 
I was guarding Maddie. So was your relationship with Maddie, is, is it, can you trace your, your ultimate intention and subsequent action to become a parent based on that relationship and what it brought out of you, that you could become a parent? Yeah, yeah. I uh, definitely that. And uh, I don't know, I saw a lot of her in myself, but I didn't have the protection. And I knew that it was going to be healing in some way to provide her with that. Closure, yeah. Man, it's been a while since we've spoken. I know. I love it. Yeah, no. I always learn so much and I always feel this real, um, I get emotional during our chats and I I feel alive and I feel like I'm having a real human interaction and and I learn. Thanks, because I am a real human. You are. I just wear a silly wig. Well, only with me. It seems that you're willing to show your real self on Good Morning America, by the way. As soon as we... No, that wasn't my real self. You think that was my real self? I had fully prosthetics and a wig on. Did you? Yeah. (laughs) I had prosthetics, a wig, the whole shit. I'm not showing my real face for fuck all. No way. I just had to have, I needed to use my eyes to be able to emote about the movies, what I felt. Yeah. And so I I was like, I have to find a way to disguise myself, but be able to use my eyes to talk about the emotions. Are you at a point now, as we wrap up, which is crazy, what a fast hour. Are you at a point now where, as a mother, as a grandmother, (laughs) what? Amazing. Two for one. Got a two for there. You got a two for there. A, <laughs> buy one, get one free. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Going in for a deep question. No sweat, couldn't help it. No sweat. As someone now who is who is reaching a point in your in your own personal well being, your own personal your micro. Not your macro, not the pop stardom and the world at large and the things we have to change and the way that we show up and use our voices. The micro, who you are as Sia, as somebody who is moving forward as a mum and as a a nurturer, where you talk about entertainers and irrelevance and no one cares. And I get it. Now's the time to say that. Now's the time to focus on other things. Allow me to just say- You know, because you know, not that nobody cares, but that people care in the in the moment they care, but that us entertainers are all totally compostable. (laughs) We're just totally where we have a you know a shelf life, and those of us who don't know that are in great danger of great mental illness and depression and desperation. The more we're not self-aware, the more we, we it hits us later when we least expect it. I understand what it, my function is. I understand and I'm grateful that I was able to be helpful to some people along the way, that I've been able to be of service, that I've been able to use my platform for good. And I'm grateful that it has also offered me, afforded me the resources to be able to donate a lot of money to different charities and also to adopt two children and send them to, you know, very costly trauma treatments that, you know, a normal person wouldn't be able to do. And that's what I'm grateful for now. I have reached my professional and my personal goals and I, I'm i at a very interesting place. Uh, three years ago when I'd reached my professional goals, I got real scared and that was part of the PTSD, I think, and I couldn't get out of bed because I was like, what do I do now? I've got no, I have no ambition. Right, that's when you realise it didn't work. 
yeah, it didn't work. And then when I uh, and there'd been several little stop gaps where I'd realized it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. didn't work. And yeah. then I'd think maybe this will work. And I'd try that. But I think being able to be a co parent to Maddie Ziegler, I think being able to be uh, a best friend to my best friend Dallas Clayton. I think being able to be a good friend to my B relationships, the ones that are sitting around here right now, and to be able to be a compassionate and non-judgmental mother to my two sons and to have the resources to really be able to help them. I've now reached my personal goals. I don't really have anything left. I, I guess I'm in semi-retirement, maybe. You know, like, I, obviously, I'm, I'm going to promote this movie and I put out more albums because I've got more albums just waiting to go. But it's, <laughs> but it's not about but, it's not about that that process trying to fill some insatiable gap in your human spirit. Oh no! And uh, I've had to have these ketamine infusions, and the ones that I did in LA, they were all completely sedated, so you didn't have any kind of lucid experience of the ketamine trip, per se. And then I came to this other place where I'm at and the doctor did it a different way and you're partly lucid during those. And at that point, the very first time I did one of those lucidly, I and it was during that experience that I realized that, you know, the road is nihilism or engaging every single moment with as much gusto as you possibly can. And I really do, you know, I think some days I think I'll fuck it all. Like, fuck it all. None of it matters. Nothing is real. We're floating through space. We're all just in a matrix. This is just, ma- like, we're just matter. And But most days, <laughs> uh, I think, how can I affect someone? Just connect. one person. How can I connect? Yeah. Yeah. How can I just make someone's day? Just one. Love you, man. Love you too, Zane. Have fun with my playlist. That's yeah, we didn't even talk about nothing. it. We didn't even talk it's, about it. There's literally nothing from the modern day. I didn't realize I know. until after I was like, and I was like, oh, I haven't listened to music in 20 years, no, obviously. I took a look at it. It was like two Sia records, Lauren Hill. I was like, wow, Sia, we got some work to do here. We got some real fucking work to do. I do. I need your help. I don't know anything about what's happening right now. Hello. Right. Cool. Thanks, babe. Appreciate you. You too. I need the education you. of Sia Furler. Well, you've gi- you've given us a lot of education today. Allow me at least to hit you with music. <laughs> oh God. I'll get you. I do music. I do music. I do music. Speak to you soon. Bye. Wow, that was a real conversation. One I will not forget, and hopefully. You enjoyed it and, and, you know, enjoyment, I get it. It's not necessarily the kind of thing that you get out of out of hearing somebody go through those kind of emotions. But uh, if you couldn't enjoy it, hopefully you learned from it and uh, gained a better understanding of Sierra and maybe even yourself from it. That's why we're here, to share these stories with each other uh, in order to get better. All right, so you can watch that interview on Apple Music if you want a condensed and cut down version of it. And also, very importantly, you can go into Apple Music and stream Sierra's music where she pours it all out in creative form. This is me, Zane Lowe, right here at the Zane Lowe series if you haven't yet subscribed because we have a lot more of these kind of conversations coming and, and I'd love it to just happen for you. Take care.